Welcome back. You're listening to another episode of The Todd Donald Show, a weekly podcast where artists and performers go to chat about nothing. Hosted by Canadian singer-songwriter Todd Donald. Hey, thanks for your patience. It's been a minute. Who's been waiting, right? Nobody, just you. You're special. On this episode, I have a chit-chat that I recorded on July 24th while I was still at the Holiday Inn in Edmonton. More on that later. And chatting with my guest who is in Montreal. If you'd like to know more about how I'm doing, stay tuned after the interview, and in this case, songs, and I'll have a couple of stories and an update. After all, I named the podcast after myself, and using it as my diary, it's the only creative outlet I have time for these days. My guest on this episode is Vienna D'Amato Hall. This is someone I've always found incredibly interesting and alluring, both creatively as an artist, but also as a person. Despite our more obvious differences, I've always more deeply resonated with what she has to say intellectually, with mindfulness on emotional intelligence over time, and its oh-so-elusive measurement uh, parameters. <laughs> it's quite clear, though, that when you hear me in this conversation, it sounds like a doctor being interviewed by a drugged-up golden retriever, which is only speaking to my anxiety at the time, the anxiety coupled with my nervous system completely entangled in a moment of poor mental and physical health and my heavy transition. With that said, I'll update you all later on me. It doesn't help, though, that we Zoomed, but Vienna recorded her end properly at the same time, and I didn't. But thankfully, the guest is more audibly comprehensile than I this time in these strange times. Vienna seemed nothing short of gracious, understanding, and game as always. This was her third time having a long-form conversation with me. The other two, if you'd like to hear them from 2018 and 2016, that's episode six of this podcast. Hence, this one is called Vienna D'Amato Hall Returns. I don't know why I'm sharing this publicly, but there's always a genuinely sharp sting that comes from the joy I get from interacting with Vienna and then knowing we're not friends, like we're acquaintances. I don't think the definitions of either have rules bound by the dictionary, but in my mind, if it's classier that I must wait another two years to chat with her, so be it. But it hurts to not be able to catch up and chat with um, people that you think highly of. Monthly, at least, would be great. Maybe bi-monthly, but I do genuinely think highly of them, and, you know, I care about their shit. Now, it's possible that you're listening to this episode and don't yet know who Vienna D'Amato Hall is. Vienna D'Amato Hall is a singer-songwriter who makes music that's incredibly accessible while being multidimensional, intellectual, theatrical, vivid AF, rolling in like a thunderstorm here and as soothing as loving arms there, depending on the song, obviously, or not. What do I know? It's singer-songwriter, it's rock, cinematic, blues, punk, grunge, stadium, or cafe, it defies my shitty attempts to sell it, but she has three outstanding IMO albums out already. It's What the Dog Saw, Red Light Temple, and more recently, Long Stay Hotel, all available on Bandcamp and the website lsbhouse.com. Links, of course, provided wherever you're listening to this. And she's on the show again to talk about several things, including being in Montreal during COVID, making new music, growing up, the invisible CEO conundrum, and more, including LSB House, which has a website, but is an extraordinary collective of artists and people that Vienna will better describe in our chat. And there's also some musical performances by Vienna to boot. I hope you all find my guest as charming as I do. I'm confident you will. Please welcome back on this podcast an artist in the purest sense, 
Vienna D'Amato Hall. All right, so I'm in Montreal, so. Montreal. Mm. What's your experience in Montreal? How are you feeling about how they're handling everything? Well, you know, it's the it's the epicenter, so it's it's a bit harrowing. And like my, you know, home away from home NYC is getting slaughtered. And I just kind of feel like everything that I know or everyone I'm in contact with more or less is in some sort of like hotbed. So personally, my live my lived experience of COVID has been incredibly privileged. So I don't want to whine because I've been just fine. But everyone I know and everything I care about seems to be kind of like burning up. However, I think we're just due for a pandemic. This happens mm-hmm. once in a while. So it's just kind of we're just very sheltered and such. So we're just kind yeah. of confused that this could happen to us. But you know, these things yeah. happen. So yeah, I don't know. I've been personally fine, but it's been sad to see and and I don't know how people are handling it. I think it's just a lot of confusion and yeah. conspiracy and hysteria and such, you know. As a person and or artist, you can be both. How have you been using the time as much as you can say personally it's been altered by isolation? So I've been in isolation since February. So this is normal now. I'm in Montreal because I'm getting a degree at McGill. So I've been studying and doing a lot of university and and coursework and such. So that's been fine. And then music wise, obviously music has died ever so slightly based on, you know, you want to be safe and you don't want to like create problems for people and so we canceled everything of course and for me it's been weird because um I've been writing a new album and usually when I write albums I play the new songs with the touring of the old album to make sure like it's good and people are like head bobbing or at least nodding and like I'm like you know penetrating on some level and this has been a very isolated experience so I've written an entire album without anyone without any feedback so it's just been this kind of like cave album you know (laughs) I made it like in my own little under my own little rock so I don't know if that's good or bad we'll see when it comes out right (laughs) haha that sheds to light the idea that you know, when I've listened to Red Light Temple, It's What the Dog Saw, and Long Stay Hotel, these beautiful albums, I've listened to them, I fully endorse them. So my understanding is now that these works that have been released did have that treatment. Kind of, kind of. You I, can finish the sentence for Yeah, me. no. So I'm like such a freak because It's What the Dog Saw was written four months to a year after, no, not even, like four months after I picked up a guitar ever mm-hmm. in life and like started singing ever in life I wrote this album so it was like you know I had like no authority to be writing albums so I, I wasn't showing anyone anything because I was like I have no idea what the f I'm doing and then that album just came out so that was a cave album if you will and then Red Light Temple was written right after and that was definitely like checked and, and that's cool and then Long Stay Hotel was written right after, but then I sat on it for two years. So I got to play all the songs and I was like, right, this yeah. is good. People are, it's happening. So I'm going to release it. So some of them did, some of them, some of them didn't. But those three albums really feel like a kind of three act play or like a trilogy right. or like their own thing. And this is definitely a new and different thing. We right should see. Yeah. Here's the thing. I could, honestly, I, I, I've always enjoyed talking with you. This is your third time doing an interview with me. And the third of three different ways we've done this, for those of you who, who haven't gone back to listen to episode six or something, there's the one we did in four years ago on your patio, and I'm yeah. holding up my cell phone. I'm oh, trying to do Lord. like this yeah. Yeah. MP3 thing. Yeah, yeah. And the second time, 
couple of years ago, you came to Katie and I's apartment. There was no COVID, of course, so that was cool. I still feel like even then, and I want to just apologize for this. In that last one, we talked about the creative process a lot, which was a lot of fun. I could listen to you talk about that all day long. Huh. I always feel responsible later on to be better. <laughs> what do you mean? You're great. I feel like there's so much more that we can chat about. Like, I, I'm not like feeling ashamed or asking for your forgiveness, but I'm, I'm sorry that uh, I'm, I'm better now and that the last time you were on, I wasn't as good as I am now. So I'm sorry that I sucked. Don't and, worry. Uh, Man, I don't even know what you're talking about, one. So don't even finish that sentence because I thought you were awesome. And B, I'm always sorry for how much I <laughs> suck at life. And then the next time I'm so much better and I wish the person could only remember my beautiful present tense. So it's all good. That's all I, that's all I see right now. You know. So you got past the questions I wrote. Yeah. So I'm going to critique the question after I ask it and then pass it off to you. I said, I think of you as a possible double O agent, thought jokingly, given that we've discussed your first home as Canada, New York, United Kingdom, and more. I have no idea how or why this came to be, <laughs> but where are you speaking to me from right now? That's a shitty question because you already said Montreal. Got it. Uh, but what, what do you feel about that though? That, like, the fact that did, you feel like how, I'm James Bond, I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> I, <like it. laughs> I want to I not answer the question and retain all the mystery. Sometimes I actually feel like mystery is better than knowledge for artists. Okay. Well, then this interview's over. I'm but, yeah, I know. But so, but in but since this this interview is about transparency, Canada happened because my dad is a huge, awesome feminist, and told my mom that if she moved to Canada with him from America, he would follow her career wherever. And she was like, "Dope, that's what we're doing." Then so. Um, that was their marital compromise, which made me born in Canada rather than America, which is where my mother is from. And then Canada happened. That's fine. And then New York was like where all my mother's family lived. So we went there all the time every year, da, 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 you know, throughout high school, like, or even like younger, like when I was nine, I would like press my face up against the glass of the car and be like, why are we going to Long Island already? Like, I'm not done, right. you know, in Manhattan. And then high school, I kind of used it as a refuge when I was feeling like a loner and a like a freak, you know, like just kind of like, I need freaks like me. I've got to get back to New York right. ASAP. Um, and then I moved there. And then that kind of was this like massive relationship, my first love. Um, and so that's that. And then, and then Britain was, um, my mom was raised in Britain. So I have this sense of like, oh, there's a part of me that feels very much like I belong there. And then Brexit happened. Then I was like, just kidding. I actually like had had moved, like left a suitcase there and then was like, okay, it's me against the entire political wave. Like it's not happening. So, so I kind of sidestepped lateral moves in life. I like that term because those of us who aren't content with not knowing much or (laughs) not thinking much, sometimes that's the only way to go. Sometimes you got to go with the flow, but sometimes you got to move laterally. Well, sometimes you got to fight. Sometimes you got to hide. Sometimes you got to move laterally. You just got to know yeah. which one's which or else you really kind of get screwed over. But yeah. And I also like to lord over people that I know what lateral means. Uh, yeah, sure. Way. I just like saying words like that, like moreover, lateral, corporeal, you know, because I'm a well, We have now, a beautiful like, language that <laughs> right. most people don't know the extent of. Yeah. <laughs> I was curious to know, like, how if you identified as... A pack rat. Are you invested in all places simultaneously and what's going on there? Like in regards to geography? Yeah. I don't necessarily identify as a Canadian, but if I had to answer that question point blank, I would say, I guess so. I've only ever lived here. I was born here. And for those reasons, you know, zeros and ones. Right. There you go. But <laughs> would, would you say that you might 
identify as being from one place mainly or from all simultaneously? I'd say that um, try as I may, Canada has always felt um, a little weird to me. And I don't know if that's my problem or it probably is, you know. (laughs) So New York was always kind of like, this is where I felt like myself. So New York is always going to be the place where I feel like home. However, I wasn't born there. And I know people who were born and raised and, and they have a, a more legitimate claim. But, you know, I, I think it's kind of like, you know, you have your family and your chosen family. You have your country and your chosen country, maybe. And I was yeah. born in Canada and I and I have a lot of love for it now that I've come back. But I definitely have never felt more like myself than when I was in New York. And when I'm in New York, yeah. you know. Did you look at the question where at the time I was... I got them all I here. Was, did you study? Uh, no. I did. I wrote I wrote little answers in red. I'm like super keen. Here we are. Got them all. Nice. I'm, I'm kind of distanced from this question. I was very into, um, for four months, I, I listened to the Rent soundtrack for the first time okay. all the way through over and over and over again. Love. And I really resonated with what Wikipedia and other websites told me a bohemian is. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't really relate to the word bohemian, which I, I'm sure is kind of disappointing since at the end you're like, are you the ultimate bohemian I know? Um, no. <laughs> but no, I don't really relate to that word because to me, bohemian, it requires a state of rebellion that I no longer feel like I participate in. Maybe when I was younger, I was a bit like, like I had specific reasons for like being the way I was or like having maybe like you, when I said I was like carnival, you know, touring person, like I had three sort of pseudo homes, but no proper home. And I was always like moving around, like doing my taxes was a nightmare. Like, you know, I was just, I think it was more fear and like, um, not quite fear, but some something in the in between fear and boredom that like I just couldn't stay still. And but I was, you know, in that way, I was bohemian, I guess. And in another way, I, there were certain things I was like really rebelling against. And I feel like that's quite bohemian. You know, you rebel against the mainstream, your counterculture. Right. I don't know. I mean, that's broad, broad stroke. But no, I don't feel like a bohemian anymore because I feel like I'm much more in a space of like creation rather than rebellion. And I can get into that a little more later, but that's kind of my, um, that's how I'm living right now. And, and that's inform- that idea is informing everything I'm doing. Sorry, but not sorry to interrupt. Here's a musical interlude featuring our guest Vienna D'Amato Hall performing her new song, a beautiful song called You Want Me. You want me, yeah. 
Someone who knew you best, is what I wrote, would say that Vienna de Madelhall as a child was. As a child, and I know this very well because my dad like videotaped my entire childhood for better or worse. Like, <laughs> I don't know. So I was just really quite contradictory. I was incredibly gentle and then also like super fearless and incredibly shy like really shy and sensitive but also like kind of popular and like loved and you know so all these sort of like very very contradictory and then I really lost that and now I feel like I'm getting back to that like I really wanted to be like you know the fearless popular leader as opposed to like the shy loner you know whatever but um when I was like I don't know for a long time that's I was really trying to push down those more you know the the qualities that maybe Instagram wouldn't be interested in or etc right but I actually found the um there's a lot of um power and beauty in sort of embracing both so I'm like a proud loner (laughs) gentle proud loner so I like it yeah uh and what, what, what was your feeling about like other people my feeling about being in a room with other kids my own age, like when you're thrust into school for the first time, my instinct 
told me that anyone that, that I hadn't talked to might pick on me or um, tease the way I looked. Childhood for me was pretty dope. I was always friends with so many boys and I loved it. So basically up until puberty happens and everything gets all fucked up, I was having a great time. I just had like all these like super cool dude friends and we would just play and, you know, I don't know, hunt things. And like it was just really free and cool. And I had some girlfriends too, but, but I just felt I, I was, I think what I mean to say is like when I was a kid, I had guy friends and that was really good for me. And then when that changed, that's when I started having the experience that you had, especially with women for whatever. Well, I know there's a few reasons, but, and then things got hard and then it was kind of like, uh, and then it was kind of like, I need like 50 steps from my weird internal workings to a hello. you know. So Yeah. yeah. But childhood was, I know, I'm lucky in that way, but for me, childhood was pretty awesome. That's cool. Yeah. So I didn't explore this before, but you mentioned in our last interview that you come from an acting background. How far did you take that? Uh, Well, you know, it took me pretty far. I don't like to say I took it that far because there's so much luck involved in these things. So like I moved to New York when I was 18 officially and I went to acting school and then I was like, boom, I was signed. It was one of those really annoying stories that nobody, everyone wants to hear, but nobody wants to hear. Like I was walking down the street kind of thing. Super annoying. Anyway, so then I, yeah, da, da, da. If you like people, it's not annoying. Well, you know, it's annoying for anyone that's like, how did you do it? It's like, well, I just got up and I was walking down the street and someone was like, you're perfect. Nobody wants to hear that story. I don't even want to hear that story. So, but that's, that's, you know, that's the end of the day. That's how it happened. So it was one of those lightning bolt weird moments and yeah. I got signed. And so I was like really set up quite early on. I did a lot of really cool training too with this guy named Wynn Hanman, um, who's fucking amazing theater um, teacher and also Elizabeth Kemp who works at the actor studio which is a bit more method and you know whatever and the whole thing was pretty awesome so I took it as far as I wanted to and then music happened and then we divorced acting and I so at what point in your life did acting start playing a role and at what point in your life did music come I told you before that my dad like out of love um, and awkwardness videotape my childhood like you know me like eating disgustingly or whatever singing or doing whatever and then like a narcissist in the making I would watch myself on television <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> but it's documented so I know it happened I was like I'm gonna like when can I watch her and it's like really weird way to form your brain anyway so being on camera always felt not like comfortable right it's kind of weird but natural you know what I mean I think it was always kind of fused in there. I didn't actually do any drama or anything like that. Not not in any real way in high school. It was more of a moment where I was like, I'm going to go to New York and do acting. And that was a clean break. But it was kind of infused, you know, like that. it just felt like the only obvious route for whatever reason. Many reasons, I'm sure. And that was cool. And then music, my mom, she's really big into the Grand Philharmonic Choir in Kitchener. And so I would like go on tour with them to different parts of the world and listen to them sing Bach and whatever. And so that was a kind of training, but I wasn't actually doing music as me as a human being until 20, I picked up my guitar at 22 and kind of was just like, oh my God, I'm so behind. And then just, you know, went for it. Well, how how did you feel about music before you took an interest in it? Didn't have any feelings. No, I was just kind of like, this is like the really boring thing that I have to like listen to as we tour Russia. But, you know, otherwise it's fun. You know, my grandfather worked in music as a classical producer at at DECA in England, which is why my mom was raised in London. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And my mom is like, if she could be any, she is, she works at the record, but if she could have had a different life, she would have been an opera singer. Like it's, you know, it's in the blood. But for me, I was like rebelling. I was like, I don't want to do any, like, like, I don't want anything to do with music. I want to go be an actor and na na na. And, uh, and then I was listening to a album and for some reason it just like, it stabbed me in the gut. That moment where I realized that I didn't want to, I didn't want to portray other people's words. I had something to say, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and for me as well, when I speak, maybe not so much anymore, but definitely at the beginning and it, and it still creeps in. When I speak, I always feel misunderstood. And like in high school, I felt like really misunderstood. And this was like my main chip on my shoulder. Like I always felt. Yeah. And I thought it was my fault too. And it probably partly was and partly wasn't. But when I was making a song, I never felt misunderstood. You might not like the song, but it's like I've expressed myself meticulously in the way I wanted to. And I didn't like fuck it up, you know? <laughs> so. 100%. I can completely relate to that, especially with, with the not so pleasant feeling like you can't make yourself understood or wondering what you're doing wrong. Yeah. Uh, I can't relate to Russia or uh, torn to see that. No, strange childhood, really. But I can relate to that. When you were starting to play and write songs, did you have a sense of how possible it would be for you to do that as a living? Did you did you think it was like a faraway idea and that was your path to follow that, knowing that? Or did you feel like, you know, if I build it, they will come? I think because I was discovered on the street, I had this incredible cocky belief that like I could do whatever the fuck I wanted, you know, because the <laughs> acting came so easy. Um, you know, lightning doesn't strike twice. And I'm kind of glad it didn't happen that way. You know, when I started, I was, there was, everyone kind of looked concerned and I was like, there's no problem. Like everything's going to be great because I really <laughs> believed in what I was doing. And even though I was successful at acting to a degree in the time I was doing it, I didn't love it in the same way that I instantly just like it was more like lust and then music was like legitimate love and so I never really questioned whether I could do it or not slowly I've started to understand the landscape of music which is really tricky and I'm glad Mm -hmm. I didn't know this then because I probably wouldn't have done it because I don't know I would just just probably wouldn't have because, you know, rationality and such. The initial hump is really just believing in yourself and having the confidence to... Maybe the only mistake I made was I had confidence in the system and that I could work the system like I worked the system in acting because, you know, I have worked the system to some degree, but what I've found is actually making your own system is much better when you want to have control over not only your life, but your work and the way it's put out and just your, your spirit. You know, I'm quite used to rejection because of acting, you know, I would do five auditions a week and get six no's somehow, you know, and that's just the nature of the beast. And I'm not really that worried by no's at this point, but with music, it's like, yes. And, and then there's this like horrific, like clause and you're like, Ugh. so for me, I've found ways to get around that so that I haven't felt like, Oh, I have to quit this to save my soul. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. If I'm looking at Vienna de Metal Hall on Instagram, it seems intentionally limited or whatever. And I say what you will about that. I like minimal. I also like mystery, mystique, all things that were sort of just the way it was at a, at a well, what I would call a great time in music. I'm not saying it's not great anymore, but I suppose if your goal was to be a member of that game, you wouldn't really have a choice. You would have to be on all social media platforms all the time posting what i'm getting from this is there's this myth 
that like when you become a musician, there is a seat, there's like an invisible CEO out there telling you to put all your shit on Spotify and Deezer and, and opening all the things and doing the thing and playing the game and doing the selfie and the, nah, nah. the myth part is that you have a CEO invisibly somewhere at Universal somehow caring. And if you're signed, then you really do have a CEO somewhere because you signed your master's away or you have a deal that works for you, hopefully. If it's a good deal, it works for you and God bless. But you do have a CEO and you do have to do these things because you've signed a contract to do certain things, you know? And maybe there's like Radiohead like wiped all their shit and, you, you know, there's variations and depending on where you are on that totem pole, you have more leverage. But the, the myth is that if you haven't signed the contract, you don't have the CEO, but people behave as though they have the CEO at Universal. Yeah. I'm just saying I'm the CEO. And as the CEO, I've decided that I'm not going to stream my music because I can't afford it because I don't have a billion people because Universal hasn't put a billion dollars into getting me a billion people. And so for me, if you take away the numbers and you look at percentages, I make way more money on tour selling my music physically, whether that's a record or a CD or people buy it on, on the MP3 or whatever, or they just pay for the show, you know? And I found sort of creative ways of, of giving them a different experience as well. Like there's certain um, live tracks that you can only get at the show and I can, and I can send it to you. And like, there's other different things that I do, but the point is, is like, as the CEO, these are the choices I'm making. And everyone looks at me like I'm betraying the invisible CEO or like I'm nuts or mental, but like the CEO is you unless you've signed a contract. Right. Damn it. I'm going to do, I could just get you to write the manifesto for my podcast. Cause I very, <sighs> you just, you just shat that out. I can't even, I labor to find words. That was well, it's, brilliant. It's been a process. That. It's been a process. No, but I want people to know that, you know, and I'm not shitting on the music industry. I think if you get a contract that works for you, God bless. But I'm just saying that everyone that either hasn't had that or doesn't want to do that or hasn't yet done that, depending on the timeline, don't give away your power to an invisible CEO. It's just so bizarre to me. It doesn't make any mm. sense. I, I suppose, um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get points for this, mm -hmm. but for anyone who's creative, your mental health is better if you're not invisible CEO. Well, yeah, because then you're always on the defense and you're always wondering, like, did I get enough likes? Like, are enough right. people Or am streaming? I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Every second. Yeah, and it just, it'll break you eventually because like newsflash, it, make, it takes money to make an album. First of all, it takes mm -hmm. like time and it takes like, part of your being and soul, blah, blah, blah. Nobody sh nobody cares about that, nor should they, because that's your job. But it's it's a job, yeah. And then it takes money, and then you have to make the money back. So unless you're touring, streaming doesn't make sense. That's the only reason people stream is because they go on these huge arena tours or whatever. Because you're not really making money. And then also, you know, Spotify and, and such, they're fine, but they work for people who are signed. So there's a like a 90% of the revenue goes towards signed artists, depend no matter who the person is listening to it's not like a it's not like a paper stream situation right so the actual mechanics of the platform where you're putting your music you have to research these things even if you do get 70,000 streams and that's like a grand or maybe a little less or whatever it is it's not actually that unless you're signed because because all these things are broken down to favor capitalism and the corporations and the the relationship so it's not even really a just system so you just have to know what you're doing and not just like it's not even surrendering. I think surrendering is like a positive thing. This is more just like, it's like being taken from not necessarily when you're not even necessarily consenting because you don't understand 
how it works, really, because it's like a brainwash thing. It's weird. You reminded me of a song that you have called Surrender. So that's an example of how it could be a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful song. Oh, thanks. I, d- I don't want to shift gears completely or move too laterally. We talked a bit about your childhood and how your relationship with people was affected once puberty came in, the fox and the hound situation. Uh, and so did you say ways. the fox and the hound? That's funny. Okay, go on. I've only seen that once, but it's like they're a fox and a hound. And it's all well and good when they're children to be friends. But as they grow older, their nature takes over or puberty and things change. The dynamics change. And I kept thinking I was a hound and I kept getting so confused. I'm like, but I'm a hound. And they're like, no, you're a fox. I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah, I got you. When you were in high school, was there a special speciality? Was there something that you took an interest in? that far back? Not really. Like I went to a really, really rigorous elementary school, which sounds lame, but it really was. It was quite intense. And so by ninth grade, I just wanted to kind of chill a little bit. So yeah, I didn't really do anything specific. You know, I wasn't like in in an arts high school, which would have been awesome, but I didn't have that opportunity. I just tried to get through it, you know. High school didn't really make me who I am in any concrete way, except for the sort of cause and effect. I'm sure it made a lot of causes which affected, you know, what I'm doing now. But it wasn't an entirely pleasant time. And like I said, I just stopped being able to be free in the way that I was as a kid. I was moving from private school to public school was quite harrowing for a sheltered, you know, gentle loner. And also there was a part of me that really wanted to be in New York and really felt robbed, like really felt out of place. And I'm sure that that pushed other people away as well, that that need to be somewhere else and to not feel at home. I think people misunderstood it as a kind of snobby elitist thing when really it was more just a trying to ground or whatever. But yeah, no, high school was, it was kind of a big whatever. And and as soon as I graduated, I just kind of like shot like a gun to New York. Can you describe a day that you would spend, like, can you describe a Saturday in your experience that is definably New York? Like me personally? Yeah. We're, we're, we're doing that. Oh, this is an act- and, oh, fun. Uh, okay. Let me like go back three years. So <clears throat> New York on a Saturday. So usually you wake up mildly hungover, probably just a little bit, not much, just a tiny amount because you've worked 40 hours a week to pay your rent and you went out and you had so much fun. And then you wait in the really long line for brunch. And then you're like, why am I doing this? F this. And then you go to Central Park and you, you know, you make a spread, whatever. And then actually, you know, by the end of my time, I really loved the cloisters. So that's up at the very top of the island. I kind of like to get away from all the cool stuff, quote unquote. And and so I would do long walks there and I would sort of invite the the really important people in my life and, and have chats. And then Saturday night, I would be anxious that I went out on Friday and I would lock myself in my studio and work. Uh, and then there'd be a lot of garbage and a lot of shouting and a lot of like doing the take and then someone like saying Arriba or something like halfway through and like really ruining it on the sidewalk. And then at about one in the morning when it's still really hot because the concrete keeps every single smell and temperature in a stasis, you know, I'd like walk to the deli and get like a coffee and sort of like walk and see the George Washington Bridge or something and crash. Would you say that there are elements of that day that are that are why you love New York? Yeah, like I love... Manhattan specifically? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Manhattan's just like where my family was and that's where I 
used to go. But Brooklyn's quite nice now too. Like Dumbo is extraordinary, if I may say so. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's like there's a word called patina. It means like if you have like a table and there's a scratch on it, that's patina. It's like the residue of living. And I feel like New York has this patina, like all the history, all its different iterations, all the people creating, they're like indexing their energy. And it's such a place of energy, whether it's good or bad. And yeah, you just become addicted to that, this sense of people's lives and and their breath and their movement. It's just, I love it. I still love it. I know it's got a lot of problems, but I still love it. Well, who doesn't, right? In the time that you have lived in New York... Did you have a a sense of feeling like you could make it there? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. (laughs) And if so, would would that translate to a a feeling of being able to make it anywhere? Yeah. I think the my blessing and curse, as I've said before, is that New York was introduced to me so young. I became the person who I am talking to you now, much altered from the person I was before I left for there. There. The mixture of sort of American exceptionalism slash urban exceptionalism slash competition. First of all, it it's like training to be an athlete or something, you know, like you can't can't fuck around really, you know, just yeah. for so many different reasons. The fact that I found success there really early, both career wise, but also emotional success in a lot of ways because I finally felt reborn like the person who I actually was as opposed to this awkward thing that was in high school and whatever it sort of wired my brain into this state of being where I literally I'm not like I wasn't afraid of the world I wasn't afraid of going anywhere everywhere else felt like a little easier or like a sigh like maybe in a good way like a relief you know so yeah I do think it had that effect I'm not that perturbed by anything you know (laughs) you know what I mean Uh, No, I can dig it. I mean, I think it's safe to say that New York has a bit of everywhere else in the world within it. I mean, even the the streets of Manhattan, there's areas designated. This is the Italian part, or this is Chinatown. Like the ratio of of people from different cultures and backgrounds is a lot different than, say, Kitchener-Waterloo. And one sense of their own identity is feels different depending on, on where you are. So I everywhere having its problems as well. I, I admire that about New York. It's Babylon, you know, it's Babylon. It's like, yeah. Plus the best damn hot dogs. Anyway, you got the ballpark. Oh yeah, Nathan's, hello. Agreed, agreed. Once again, I'm here to introduce a song. This is once again, Vienna, a stripped live performance of her song Free from the Longstay Hotel album. Dig it. This song is called Free. It's two in the morning. Of course, I'm thinking of you. Your threadbare in the scare. Something you can undo You could be free You could be free 
what must be Oh, that cannot be touched The moon watched us go Immortal and bored As we gave each other too much Just to feel free I read the words new album on an Instagram post and it might've just been in a comment to something. I immediately got excited as a fan of your previous work, of course. The too much pretense, yada. Okay, you mentioned new album on Instagram. <laughs> the words new album were there, so. Um, it's written and it's blazing, but it's no, the uh, timeline of it obviously has been delayed. And, and that's fine, actually. That's just fine. So what I'm doing instead is, for the moment at least, I'm creating a stripped album. Just me and the guitar. And I actually think that in a weird way, it's kind of a blessing because a lot of people who come to the shows, they you know they either really love the, the album as it is, or they really love the live. And it's not to say they, they don't like both, but like you know, it's like one or the other. They're like these two camps and I don't have any, well, yeah. And I don't have anything for the people who really love it live. 
I really don't. And it's quite different because the album is, well, the albums, depending on which album you listen to, there are various degrees of blues rock, hard, not hardcore, but almost like a little bit grungy. Like, like it's got yeah. attitude, you know, it's got some, it's, it's virile, you know, and then live, um, it's still got attitude, but it's definitely different. And it's just even the, my voice has changed so much as well. As I've continued and I sing the songs differently too. There's there's little alterations here and there. And so I think it's kind of a blessing because I'm going to have something now that I can make in my studio for people who just want to take the concert home with them. And I wasn't thinking on that level necessarily before. The album will come out when it, when it makes sense and when it's safe and da-da-da. But in the meantime, I'm going to select a few really nice songs and, and do a, a stripped thing. This is just coming from my mind so take it for what it is or don't but i would say that i never got around until recently to writing as if the song like when i wrote songs i was always writing as if all the layers that were going to be added on to just me playing and singing it would forgive what the song alone was lacking and i was always orchestrating like brian wilson or jeff lynn and i would and i would have to apologize because the songs on their own weren't written to be strong enough on their own um, I would say, having seen you live and those acoustic performances from before, you're, you're a really strong writer at songs that can be enjoyed there. Buy the albums. I insist you do support this artist and certainly appreciate what's on there. But you, Vienna, please feel good about what it sounds like. Because my opinion is, is God. And... <laughs> Uh, I think you get the point. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's there's different reasons for that. But I think a lot of that was born out of the uh, feeling like, like I always just felt like I couldn't really sing and I couldn't really play the guitar. And so like I have to really make sure that the lyrics are good. And I don't know how that thought nugget like burrowed itself into me for so long. But I think it's just because I started so late. So I'm glad that that it's done something good, all that nervous energy you know that's good okay but you mentioned um you, you got all george lucasy but you mentioned maybe in retrospect or maybe it was in the in the plan all along that the first three albums sort of exist together as a three-part three acts yeah should i glean maybe that this new thing will be the beginning of something else or exist on its own yeah i mean i can't predict the future however there has been a side- you should be able to oh, i know God damn it. i know i would be Work on that and then we'll come back. There's been a seismic change and shift in my state of being that is really quite departed from those three albums. I'm sure it is the beginning of something larger. However, this, yeah, this new album, you know, the, the other three, and I love them, of course, it's not a criticism. It's just that they were coming of age trilogy yeah there it's a woman in an american landscape i mean pretentious i'm talking in third person but because i say that because it's not just my story it is a universal story because i try and take Mm -hmm. the the subjective parts out a little bit but it's really about reacting rebelling reflecting cause and effect and reaction and this new album is a sort of more purposeful active rebirth and creation I'm on the offense. Does that make sense? Right. So it's cool and it's very different. I'm sure it'll be the beginning of a new sort of uh, musical era. These things just change. You don't change them. They just yeah. change, you know. Well, I, I look forward to it regardless. If I had no information, I'm biased, yes, but for, for whatever it's worth, yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> Regarding <clears throat> travel, I'm not a huge fan of traveling. What would you say is like the worst day that you've had getting on an alpha plane going to australia 
<laughs> worst. Um, just because of how long be- it's been? Because you leave on Tuesday and you arrive on Thursday and you're like, how the fuck? Yeah, no, it's it's a really long flight. It's really brutal. And I went twice in a year. And and also, even maybe maybe not even the, the flight, but coming home and the first day of jet lag. I'm like not the person I like to be, you know. Yeah, no, right. that was hard. I mean, those tra- those flights and those distances are hard. And I don't have you been to Australia before? No. Maybe maybe someone who's listening has. It's such a palpable feeling of being far away. It's such mm-hmm. like you feel so far away from everyone you know. It's so hard to stay in contact. It's like 14-hour difference at some point of the year. I think it's in the winter. It's just far. You know, you're untethered. It's strange. The the you know, the water acts differently. You're you're in you're in bizarro world. The the stars are different. Everything is different. It's can't explain right. it to you. It's very strange. So anyway, yeah, that was the worst. The worst and the best. These are usually these are sister concepts, you know. You use the word bizarro. Is that a superhero reference? Yeah, I don't know what that was. That was that was deep <laughs> in my reptilian brain that just came out. I don't know. Well, I, I guess. Oh, it's so Seinfeld. Things, it's Seinfeld. Bizarro Seinfeld. world. Yeah, yeah. 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 See that that was my childhood introduction to the idea of New York. Oh, see. same, same. Like I would stay up like way too late with my mother and watch Seinfeld all day, mm-hmm. all night, rather. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> Let me ask something about new music. This might get good <laughs> for you as an interviewee. There are things that I'm thinking of more recently, just ongoingly. And I'm sort of on the cusp of shaping a new project. I sort of did this podcast on the seat of my pants for the last 12 years. But th- this one I'm actually like making extensive notes on. And I'm kind of overwhelmed at the idea of bearing them down. But the whole idea is that I've become aware that I'm not only a millennial, according to Wikipedia, but the newest young adult voice is now Gen Z, one of many terms. And it's all, of course, age defined by Wikipedia per se, maybe. I don't necessarily identify as a millennial, and I don't think that the year you were born is something that you should be worried about or thinking of as part of you. I agree. There's this misanthropic community of people within I don't know, people who were born in 74, the misanthropic among them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, put that on any age. And there, there's this divide. There's this cultural argument blaming one generation up and down for this and that. I'm like, I'm looking at the Gen Zs and I'm feeling my own personal things about getting older, not being the youngest adult in the room now. And it makes me feel a certain way. And my response might've been in the, in the past, sort of to be, uh, you know, what do you Gen Zs know? I, I was around when this was on TV, therefore it makes me better than you <laughs> and all this kind of bullshit. Uh, and the whole point of the podcast is to be like, okay, we're one-on-one and I'll be talking with Gen Zs. I, I want to know about their personal experience, not as a Gen Z, not as someone their age, but what is it like to be a young adult between 18 and 25 with the world as it is today, as opposed to the world that I was in when I was 18 to 25 and sort of this bonding thing can happen to having that out in the world instead of just more things saying Gen Z's are shitheads because boomers are shitheads because it's more philanthropic and positive than not positive. So do you identify as being part of a generation? Well, I remember 9-11 and I think there's a divide between people who do and don't remember 9-11. Although the climate catastrophe is sort of becoming a new kind of 9-11. What I mean is like, you know, my brother was born in 96. He doesn't really remember 9-11 in the same way that I have that flash light bulb memory. And I think his experience of the world is just a bit different because that was um, 
a moment, you know, like a real yeah. fucking moment in, in Western, in the Western psyche. So anyone who remembers 9-11 to me is in my generation. And I know that's a really broad thing to say, but for me, at least when people are younger than, than me, if they don't remember it, I just feel like they have a different perspective on the world. Um, yeah. And then the only other thing that I can say, I, I when I was young, I skipped a grade. So I was always the youngest. So I always have this idea about myself that I'm the youngest, but not no, I'm not the youngest anymore. And that's fine. I'm not that interested in like, Newtonian time like I'm not really that invested in like 25 means this and then 26 means this exactly 30 means this like I don't really care I'm not I'm like I just find it quite boring is all Uh, I don't have a very conventional life you know I'm not Mm -hmm. doing the picket fence thing where people are supposed to care about these things so for me I don't I don't really care but I would say that the thing that makes me feel part of a generation is becoming very aware of the climate catastrophe and like what the next 80 years looks like for the people born soon, uh, <laughs> you know? So I feel like anyone who cares and is in the position to care and change things is part of a generation that surpasses Z or millennial or whatever. This is the thing of our, this is a humanistic, like, you know, existential issue. Right. I don't know if you're like this, but I also don't believe in thresholds. I don't believe in people saying, like having expectations of what turning a certain age means and then measuring yourself against, by the time I'm 30, I, I wanted to uh, to have accomplished this. I wanted to have uh, two cars in the garage and yada, yada. And then something blows up in their mind and in their heart because the threshold came and that wasn't the case. Hmm. You know what? I, I, do, I do believe in thresholds. I just don't believe in materialistic thresholds. It's like, by the time I'm 30, I want two cars and a husband. It's like, okay, that's not really a good goal to have. It's like, by the time I'm 30, I want to be, I want to feel whole no matter what anyone says to me. That's a good threshold to have, you know? And that's the kind of stuff that I concern myself with. If, a, if two cars come, great. I'll, I'll, I'll start, I'll relearn to drive, you know, New York city kind of ruined that for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not that good on the road. You know, I have a license, but everyone should watch out. You know, if, if these things manifest material things that reinforce my, um, you know, my sort of spiritual threshold, that's great. But the, I think the real problem is that people say at 25, I'm this at 30, I'm this by 40, I have this, but they haven't really addressed the spiritual. So those things, not only do they distract from the spiritual because you're like, well, I'm fine. Cause I have two cars rather than they, they, that's what, you know, midlife crises are about when you realize that you just yeah. have a bunch of topical shit and inside you're kind of the sinking pit. And that's, so yeah, thresholds are important. You know, I'm not like a, I'm not like, Oh, la la live in the moment. Life is, you know, a bowl of cherries. It's like, but I it have these have goals. <laughs> yeah. It's just That's not material. Extreme. Yeah, this is like yeah. the capitalistic brainwash thing. It's like, what does that actually mean, two cars and a husband or two cars and a wife or two cars and a partner, whatever, you know? doesn't yeah, mean anything. At, at post-war. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's brilliant. No, I, I never thought of dividing it like that. Material versus visual, like, that's now in my arsenal. You just wrinkled my brain. I'm glad. Thank you. Good. Is there anything that is brand new that you've loved in music? I want to say yes, but I'm thinking no. Not, 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 not even saying no because there's no one. It's just I don't really listen to music very much. <laughs> oh, ironically, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. But I don't, I don't, uh, I don't listen to music much. So it's not because you're avoidant of it. It's just because you, that's happenstance. Um, 
I'm just, I'm just uh, like, I love what I love, you know, and maybe I'm like you, I'm, I'm kind of in my cycles and whatever, but I just don't find music that inspiring. And I think it's only because I'm always worried it's going to show up in my music and I'm much more interested in like learning other things so that right. I don't unconsciously regurgitate stuff, you know? Right. So when I'm listening to music, I, I think I'm always a little bit anxious. I'm like, ah, don't make sure you don't pinch that. Like that was awesome, but don't, you know? So there's moments when I'll listen to it for sure. But for me, um, and maybe this is an unfortunate byproduct of becoming a musician who, a kind of musician who, and I think there is a space and time for progression and like, you know, um, continuing a rotation of something as a new generation. And, you know, you take from Joni Mitchell and you, whatever, Leonard Cohen or whatever. But for me, my, I'm so obsessed with creation in its most pure form right now. And I'm doing a lot of personal work to, to do that. Um, and so I'm kind of terrified of listening to music cause I, I've really just bottomed out and took a lot of work to, to purify a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. From what I have gleaned, I don't think Bjork or Tom York mm. uh, listen to music or at least certainly not when they're creating things. If you can dig anything that they've done, I love all of it. Oh, I dig him so much. It might have something to do with how friggin' brilliant we feel they are. Totally. If we love them. totally. And, and some people are just all about listening to everything because in their experience it helps them yeah and that's good too would, would, would you say that you have a good experience with me trying to ask questions i think it's fun yeah because i'm really attentive you know because you go in these sort of like roland bart types loops and i have to follow you so it's fun for me it's it's not i can't go on autopilot so i'm enjoying it <laughs> What was that reference? What, Roland what Bart. Oh, Roland Bart. He's a yeah. He writes. He writes things. Um, he has this style of <laughs> prose where, if you were to draw it, it would probably like you know it's like very circuitous and it goes over here and go around that. Oh, and there's that same concept that you started with, and now you're gonna end the sentence. And it's like very brilliant. He's fucking brilliant, but it's like you can't can't just. It's not just A to B. Anyways, it's hard to say on a podcast. I, if you could draw it, I could show you. Anyway, right. you should read him. You're like him, quite quite like him. Well, if, if you would like to write a few sentences for me one day about uh, what it's like to be interviewed by me, I, I would trust your fine ability to express yourself. I, I would pay you a, a single digit amount because I'm poor. Uh, <laughs> I would love that, please. Okay. Can you explain to the audience what lsbhouse.com is? Or LSB House? It's <laughs> not just a website. is our website. LSB House, yeah, it's 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 a baby. I started it last year. Uh, it was just starting to sort of hit fire, and then and then COVID happened, which at first was really frustrating, and now actually has been a huge blessing because I've been able to sort of check it out from all sides before progressing. Anyway, LSB is it's two things. It's an art collective of women, artists, photographers, videographers, poets, etc that I like to bring together, not only to give them a platform to show their work, to sell their work. This is part of my you are your own CEO kind of movement, yeah. But also to collaborate. Like, for example, I'm doing a music video right now for Longstay Hotel as like the final hurrah before we move on to this next album cycle. And I'm taking all the people from LSB. So it's a dancer, a ballet and modern dancer from LSB and then a videographer from LSB and then we create this thing. And it's nice because it's, you know, over my time... And I've been guilty of this, of this sort of like, 
individualistic, competitive kind of vibe where it's like me against you, which is kind of shitty, you know, Um, because there's only so much money and so many stages and so many 8 p.m. at on Friday night slots, etc. And I was like, fuck that, you know, this sucks. This is not the way to live. What happens when we all work together and create something bigger than Vienna de Motto Hall or whomever? And so the idea is like, it's not just Vienna de Motto Hall long stay hotel music video. It's an LSB production of all sorts of independent, awesome, talented women working together to all get seen and understood and bought or whatever it is, whatever the, the modus is by their different, Um, fan bases and then they all kind of come together in this space but then more not more importantly but equally as important lsb is also a community of women and men too but mostly it is geared towards women in that it is a space where as a and and again it kind of ties back into my own personal growth of instead of reacting against society you know which women have a fair and justified position to have certain gripes, you know, with what they have to overcome or sidestep or accept or reject. But instead of that, I'm more interested in what happens when you dissolve it. And then what is sort of, I don't want, I don't like to use the word essence because I find it a bit dangerous, but like what is the tangible organic stuff of you before it was all adulterated by society? And if you take out the things you're rebelling against, what do you create? And how different is it? How much better is it than just saying, I got fucked over by this, this, and this, or I'm free regardless of this, this, and this, or, you know, he thinks I'm this, or she thinks I'm, there's a lot of like, I don't know if this is the case for men as much, but I know a lot for women, there's a, just this ingrained sense of like, how are you seen? And it's really boring. It's like, you know, you're taught to be seen. You're beautiful. You're this, you're that, you're a creature or whatever the fuck. But rather, I'm more interested in like, how do you see? And if you see different than how you've been taught to be seen, and then you teach that to society or to people or to people who are interested, it creates the space to be authentic. And through that, I think the work gets better. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what LSB is. So it's for artists, but it's also for like women or human male humanists, you know, people who really dig this sense of not just going through the world the way that Hollywood has assigned characters and relationships and systemic whatever, but rather how do you become happier, more free, more authentic in whatever job you do by coming to our events? And there, you know, I can't really disclose everything we're doing because it's about to be launched, but it's it's not just art-based. There's like a huge plethora of different kinds of things that we're doing to create that. And it has to do with, you know, not only just feeling and talking and whatever, but true neuroscience behind it and how you really like rewire your mind to be more free and to divorce yourself from certain toxic societal things yeah yeah that's really profound and the amount of positive things that i have to say about you and your work get to a point where they sound insincere perhaps someone listening might think that i hope you don't but i i that's really exciting me i've been to the website a few times i love what's there i've i've checked out um dana debolt she's awesome i love her go on no i was just just shouting out her praises she's super cool I love the music that I've heard of hers and I found out about her because of LSB House and um, all of your music is available there at lsbhouse.com, right? Okay. When this strange time goes back to, or no, let me return from inside my own head to say... Welcome back. <laughs> when there's a vaccine yeah. or we're able to go about 
our lives similarly to before, hopefully better. Mm. One, do you think we'll all revert back to a certain air of irresponsibility, cleanliness and all that? And, and what is the first thing that you're going to want to do with your work when it's in a world where... Question mark? <laughs> uh, where, where you forgive me for not knowing how to end that. No, question. it's good. Um, you know, everyone's lived experience of the pandemic has been obviously so different. And it's been, a, a, you know, either people don't even remember it's happening or people like are dying from it and everywhere in between. I think that because of that, there is a sort of psychic scar that is going to be left from this because we're just not really used to not having our like awesome lives you know everyone's kind of traumatized and it's been a really long time and like I know all my friends in New York are just they're kind of fucked up you know it's really sad like it's not just you and your friends it's like your landscape your city or whatever and then some people haven't been affected at all and I don't know if it'll have the same effect on them but I think some people will feel really like this has imprinted on them in some way what I hope is that that doesn't get buried and then forgotten about, you know, instead, I think there's something really good that we can do. Like, well, it's not just with LSB, but also with my own music and just myself as a human being, because I've been in isolation since about February, I've had the incredible privilege to reassess everything and see where I was getting in my own way and see where I was kind of the one choking myself out when I thought it was things around me or other people or situations. And I've really taken responsibility for that. And because of that, when I emerge from this state, not only do I want to implement everything I've learned, but I want to share it. That's why LSB has turned into what now it's become. And I think that we have the opportunity, not only with ourselves and the Black Lives Matter movement and all these different movements that people are kind of, you know, for whatever reason it's happening now. And I think there are different ingredients as to why these movements are happening now. But even I'd like to see things happen with the environment in a different way and in a more in-tune way than they had been happening because we've all had time to think. At the same time, we're, what, $400 billion in debt. And so there is this fear that we're going to just go back into our old ways and maybe even revert into more base ways because we felt so deprived. And I think it's a real opportunity to, you know, bring your best self and see how you can be kind and and be aware and be grateful for things and understand that reality isn't a given and everything can be taken away. You know, your business or your way of life or your routine, you know, there are things that are bigger than us. And so that gratitude, I think, might lead to some good changes, hopefully. Um, And then for the second part of your question, my music was going in a certain direction that I was happy about. And now it's going in a direction that I'm like really fucking happy about. I want to do some festivals and I want to make the new album and I want to provide this stripped album. And I want to be a little bit more, a little bit more giving in my, in my performances. I've been a little bit aloof. Why would you say that? I don't know. It's, it's just the way that my, my, I programmed myself to be. I, I, again, like this notion of, I thought that perhaps the way to, do this without getting hurt, you know, was to be distant and the way to do it without being too impacted or wounded by criticism was to be, you know, just aloof and just kind of above it and rather, and I think that's fine, but I don't think it's as interesting um, as being engaged. So I'm just going to sort of challenge myself to be less aloof, more engaged, but still a little mysterious. Yes. 
but still in the mind of you're the CEO, right? You, oh, yeah. you don't have to go the extreme of like, I'm going to work the room and, and be like. Oh, no, no. Uh, but no, by, I mean, by aloof, I just mean just give more, like in the performance. Yeah. I don't even mean by the conversation. I mean just by what I'm actually offering in the show. Do you ever fantasize about what it'll feel like? to be playing at a festival or anything else that is sort of like an embodiment of what we can't gonna have s- right now. I'm going to say something really West Coast now, so I hope you'll have me oh. on again after I say this, but I'm a huge believer in visualization. And so when I'm not doing my technical work or creating the music, which doesn't happen every night, it's not like I just sit down and make an awesome song every night, but you have to show up, right? But when I'm not doing that, I actually do music meditations almost. So I will play a set with my eyes closed and I literally visualize that I'm playing. I know that sounds really weird, but for me, it's really important because if your body still believes that you're having the experience, then you do have the experience. And it really wards off this feeling of despair or hopelessness or whatever. And so I haven't missed a beat. And I think that's why my work is still good. I think that's why I'm still energized and motivated and I haven't fallen into any kind of depression. In fact, I found it very liberating. (laughs) So I'm not, I don't wonder because I have the experience every night. And when you do that, like you say, it wards off the despair and and negative feelings. Do you experience a gratification from that? Huge. Well, yeah. I mean, I forget what time it is. And to me, that's the marker of what you should be doing in your life. If you can make money doing it, awesome. And if you can't, you have to keep it somehow. But when you literally transcend time and you're not thinking about it and you're just having a pure experience that is positive and that is hopefully going to create some change or goodness in the world, that's that's all good. So it's not just about warding things off. It just definitely has that effect. But the body only knows what you experience, and whether that's physically or in your brain, that's what your body right. becomes attuned to, you know. But I think I literally would have psyched myself out of believing that this was possible if I hadn't played or thought I was like engaged in my work for what, almost five months now? It's crazy, yeah. right? Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time from Montreal. I'm in Edmonton. This is so weird to say. Thank you. And I'd like to um, offer you, I'm going to send you um, a really stripped down version of one of the songs off of the stripped album that's new. So you can throw it in at the front or whenever you want. And if you want to. I would love to. All right, cool. It's called You Want Me. So it's going to be fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Not only are you a great guest and I love your work, but I really admire your personality. And I, I feel like I, uh, I learned a bit more about myself through your ability to fucking speak things. Oh, good. Um, And it's great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Cheers to you. One more time, and to close this episode's interview following my uh, boring diary submission, here's a studio track from the album Long Stay Hotel and used with permission. This is Womanhattan by Vienna D'Amato Hall. You said Nothing sticks to me Not the fame of a memory Not the dust of us Or a stranger touch No, nothing sticks to me I think you're wrong You never wanted to see me 
Reading from my brain. This is my journal, so I would otherwise write a blog because I love that form, but I don't have the time right now to do that or write songs. So I'm putting some things down uh, into this part of the podcast so that they don't chew me out from the inside and I can verbally say it so it's festive. Before you skip the segment, if you're inclined to, no big deal. This is also where I'd like to respond to listener emails. I don't really post on social media much, so as much as I'd like to expose my inner ramblings and life story, I'd like to know what's going on with you and answer any questions you might have. Don't be shy. If I already know you, then I can use this podcast as a social conduit from way up north here and would love that. My email address, as well as the email address for the show, is todddonald at gmail.com. That's T-O-D-D-D-O-N-A-L-D at gmail.com. Donald like the duck. A note. Uh, my mom listens to every episode, so counting this one, she'll be listening to me talk about feeling shitty. And for you to understand my mom, she listens to every episode and also can't stand the idea of me ever feeling shitty. That's my mom, and I love my parents very much. I'm blessed, but I still feel it necessary to experience both the good and the bad. And it is what it is. So, starting off, I had a note to say it's now past five years since I met Vienna. I had her as a guest on my iPhone shot podcast back in 2016. But a year prior, I was at this function joined by my high school friend, Caitlin, and 
uh, it was an art show at this bookshop cafe, Queen Street Commons, exquisite place in downtown Kitchener, Ontario. I went because there was an open call for musicians and performers to come out and play at it. I met everyone there showing their art, and um, among those who came, and some of whom needed to borrow my guitar, was this extremely talented young woman named Vienna. I felt extremely blessed for all of these accidental introductions to wonderful artists and people. Cut to 2018. I had Vienna back on the show. The show was now the audio podcast you're listening to, and in the introduction to episode six, I mentioned the function that we met, uh, making a reference I thought was funny at the time uh, to the idea that the art show was protesting the Vietnam War, kiddingly. My note here uh, is to apologize for how stupid and not funny that was. It's like a drunk uncle making a weak link joke that the only time for an art show that's also an open mic would have been during the hippie free love era like we get it dad very very funny you idiot not clever at all i'm sorry about that so my partner katie is a teacher she graduated from teachers college at laurier in waterloo last year ontario uh, being what it is for teachers made teaching full-time appealing if you're willing to go abroad there are very attractive and lucrative opportunities out there <laughs> the one Katie chose was a three-year contract in Joahaven, Nunavut, in the Arctic Circle. So she went last summer. I stayed back, worked at Descendants. It was awesome. And in January, after the Christmas holidays, I went back up. Now, I have nothing against Joahaven. It's very different, but it's not bad. It's just impossibly not Ontario, where all of my friends and family are, and all of the things that I'd like to do can be done. So I miss it terribly. In June, not too long ago, we traveled back home to visit. There was a two-week isolation. Then I had two weeks, two to three weeks of heavenly experiences, being able to drive my car again, see some friends that I've, as I've mentioned, get coffees that someone else made, and on a whim, I could drive to the park and fall in love with books again, all in the glorious summer heat and neath the shade of trees trees being something that you cannot see for hours in the air where we are geographically, all to be ripped away from again and then put in another isolation hub in Edmonton for another two weeks in order for Joe Haven to let me, Katie, and the rest of the teaching staff return from Ontario, the East Coast, or where else were. So during this second isolation, there were guards. You had to check in and out with them if you were visiting the monitored outdoor area behind the hotel the parking lot and the field near train tracks across from a Molson brewery wafting a, a heavy dose of hoppy aroma, which is the worst part. And I worked in a brewery. This was yuck. But it's outdoors. Otherwise, you stay in your room that, where there's Wi-Fi and free meals. And I edited podcasts and downloaded a bunch of movies. Uh, it was kind of cool to feel like Jason Bourne when you walk by the elevator and you have to give the person your room number and they walkie-talkie it down to someone downstairs like 401's coming down. This is kind of cool. Also during this isolation was a heavy hit to my immune system. Anxiety about leaving Ontario again, a bit of depression, and a lot of both. And when the two weeks were over, it compounded, I guess. Now I'd like to interject with a funny story. Next to the hotel, you could see a giant sign for a car rental service shared by a sign of equal size for a weed store. Not like a boutique shop or a subtle thing. It was like a giant tiger for Edmonton weed. I have no idea what the store was actually called because all of its gigantic signs either used weed or Buddha or marijuana. And on the one sign that was meant for, I don't know, a sales pitch, in big green letters just said, 
get weed. <laughs> and one of the days when we were outside, I could hear a very cops-like argument coming from the weed store's direction, you know, between a guy and a lady. There was something about stealing and revenge. And the very next morning, there were five, like five fire trucks putting out a fire on the opposite end of the weed Walmart. And that was uh, a strip club next door. So we were staying near the height of civilization. So not maybe Edmonton's finest uh, zone. Anyway, the people running the show at the hotel, the nurses, the quarantine team of getting us from Edmonton back up to the Arctic, herded all of us on the morning of the 3rd. Well, out of our rooms into a bus toward the airport. Uh, they were a swift crew and made the whole operation very smooth, like a baby's egg. I was experiencing the beginnings of a day of food poisoning and food or food poisoning like symptoms and had horribly uh, depressive feelings about leaving Ontario behind again. Uh, I was not in the mood to go. I was not in the mood to pretend I was in a good mood, and this affected my ability to be kind and me at my best, which isn't the best person ever, but still way better than I was. For context, not only was I traveling with Katie and her coworkers, all of whom I mentioned and I'm already fond of, but also new teachers that we met at the hotel that were all also going to Joe Haven for the first time. Uh, the, one, the ones that I met, also fond of, now, they're all a bit more excited. They're open-minded and invested in this journey, whereas I'm bitter and sour right now, as hopefully I've made it easier to understand. And on the bus from the hotel to the airport, we could hear some of the newbies chatting about what they knew about Joe Haven so far that they'd heard. And I'm sure that I could have looked at Katie or to the others returning, and we could eyeball each other going like, check. Oh, yeah, we know what they're referencing. Check. We know what it looks like already. Check. Check the uptown downtown geography of the small town, check the poutinery. Now, me being bitter and sour in this moment stopped me from being affectionately appreciative of their excitement. It doesn't display the very true fact that I also think these kids are swell. I can't say this enough. I'm both excited to get to know them. I want them to not be like me at this moment. I want them to be excited and open-hearted about it all. But here's what I did while in my state. So we get out of the bus load our luggage onto carts and begin to wait for the luggage counter person at the airport. I'm just behind my partner and the returning teacher's crew. And I went, hey, it's funny to hear the new teachers talking about Joe Haven. Like, I hear they got a sick poutinery and <laughs> don't get too excited, right? Like I mimicked someone. I actually mean-spiritedly mimicked someone like I'm fucking Jimbo Jones from The Simpsons. And the person that I was mimicking seems like a really nice dude. I have no ill will towards him, but this is the kind of thing... I'm sure you all know what it's like to, to feel disdain for things and people when your entire body is telling you that everything sucks. It's the exact same thing like when you're grossed out by your favorite meal, when you're sick, but you still need to eat. So I said that mean and pithy bullshit proclamation, as I believed, silently to the returning teachers, all of whom kind of backed away for me to later find out that the very nice young man that I'd mimicked was right behind me when I said it. He hasn't said anything about it, and I don't know what he thinks of me now, but I'm very sorry. It's not how I feel about him. I'm just going through some stuff. Now, and at this very moment, I'm back in the house in Joe Haven where Katie and I will be until winter holidays for another semester of her teaching and me working full-time and trying to be true to my podcast and other creative outlets. Wish me luck. The internet is shitty, but hopefully that won't stop me from continuing to get some dynamite interviews with 
awesome people as always. But hopefully also I'll use this time to exercise and get back to my best self. Things I'm currently enjoying for posterity. Uh, 80s movies. Books. Uh, We're Gonna Need More Wine by Gabrielle Union. Ann T. Donahue's Nobody's Nobody Cares is on deck. Uh, UK Garage Music. Vienna de Matto Hall's music, obviously. Uh, cartoon Network shows like Adventure Time and Steven Universe. And the, that new cartoon, The Son of Rick and Morty. It's called Solar Opposites. Great, great. Uh, I recently watched a movie called Palm Springs with Andy Samberg and the mother from How I Met Your Mother, which was very nice in its execution, but it's... You know, that time-honored tradition of the straight guy and girl who make the case against companionship but still end up fucking and falling for each other. Only instead of New York City, it's a Groundhog Day-like time loop with no mystery or ambiguity. But, I mean, who doesn't love Andy Samberg? And I still had a great time watching it. Also, Dummy on Quibi. It's Cody Heller's delightfully dark, edgy, hilarious original show starring Anna Kendrick as Cody and... uh that's on the Quibi app. Peace out, everyone. Um, thanks for listening to the show and extra points for listening to this portion. I love you, kinda. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Todd Donald Show, starring, produced, and edited by Todd Donald. The piano music in the rap is by JP Sunga, who you can find at jpsunga.com. The theme music is Mackie Alkino by William Chernoff. Find him at chernoff.band. And I'm Milo Axelrod, Todd's favorite bar none human voice. And I'm not bragging, he wrote this. If you'd like to hear more of my voice, check out my podcast, Describing a Rock, in which I describe some rocks. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Please support The Todd Donald Show by sharing it with anyone who might enjoy it. Follow and interact with at Todd Donald Show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you feel like going the extra mile on iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review, preferably in its favor. Have a great day, friends. 